Here at Making Movies is Hard, we want to express our support for the writer strike. We encourage our filmmaker comrades to look into how best they can be allies for the good fight. Please go to WGACONTRACT2023.org to support the cause. You know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome. This is a podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Mark Bissell, the founding host of the podcast. I'm a sci-fi horror filmmaker. And my first feature film, The Alternate, is out now on digital, DVD, and Tubi. I'm Liz Manischel. I'm a writer, director, producer who has made two features, Bread and Butter and Speed of Life. And I'm currently in development on a few more, but I'm focusing on Best Friends Forever horror comedy. I'm a distribution consultant who used to manage the Creative Distribution Initiative at Sundance. And I do sales. On this Thursday bonus episode, we're going to play the interview from episode 311 from March 2021 with Anthony Scott Burns, where he talks about making his first feature after quitting a feature he had already been hired to direct. Auric thought this was a good match for Bermani because they both worked with established producers on their films and had amazing film festival success. Didn't they both share South by? I'm like, feel like. South by I think it might have been yeah definitely Fantasia and I think oh it, yeah um, might have been fantastic instead yeah, of South by or maybe yeah it could have been they share Austin Texas film festival success after that we play another round of yo the expert which I have been told to sound like a carnival barker from the northeast but don't forget to check out our Patreon page so Patreon is how we keep the show going it is a platform that supports artists creators with a monthly fee and our monthly fee base is $1.99 to get access to our entire back catalog of the show. The website's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash M-M-I-H podcast and check us out there. Without any further bibble babble, here's our throwback interview with Anthony Scott Burns. Well, Anthony, uh, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. Um, so we're going to start with our uh, five questions. Okay. Uh, can you just give us the elevator pitch for Come True? Oh, man. <laughs> you know, it's been so many years, the elevator pitch. Uh, a movie about nightmares. <laughs> uh, and sort of how they all sort of link us together. And and sort of the how how right Carl Jung was. That's that's really what it is. The horror film about how right I believe Carl Jung is in in terms of how we all are connected. How many days did you shoot? Uh, sixty days. We shot for sixty days. Sixty. Wow. Yeah. That's yeah. Holy I love that. And and that that comes from my my want and desire to have as much time as filmmakers whose films I admired had on their films so if you could say what was the rough budget for your 60-day shoot i don't really want to put it out there because i know some people don't want how low it was out there uh but it was low um and so uh maybe your next question is i don't know how many crew members did we have and it was five um (laughs) so so that's how we got the 60 days is 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 we reverse engineered the production to be, we need as much time with the actors. And that comes from, again, this, for me, um, I built up the skill set so that um, my sort of uh, idea of making movies is that it doesn't matter what kind of tech you have and all the rest of that stuff is if you put Daniel Day-Lewis in front of your image, your image capture device, 
you can make a great film because they can they can emote and and create your you know make your characters real and so that's where all of the ideas come from and how we made come true is that it doesn't matter the, the infrastructure and all that stuff. It's that it's about getting great performers in front of the camera. So oh God, I have like 30 questions to ask, but okay. But the next in the rapid fire template question. Yeah. Is, <laughs> These are the least rapid fire, rapid fire. Um, how long, and I think you might've mentioned this at the beginning of their chat. How long did you spend working on the film from uh, its inception to release? Well, three years, three years, but, but, I had made a movie in between. So there's another two years tacked on <laughs> before that. Um, uh, Come True was set to be my first feature film, um, but because it was experimental and because I wanted to do it a certain way and, and with very little infrastructure, um, I was advised to go and make another movie first. <laughs> <laughs> and I made uh, that movie and I quit that movie in the edit. <laughs> Oh, my God. oh wow! Yeah. More questions yeah. are loading up. Yeah. It's stacking. It's stacking. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you already answered this next question, but so I'm just going to jump a question. Compared to all of the other projects you've made, how difficult was this one? You know, it's weird. Emotionally, I was able to stay pretty zen throughout the entire project because it was so exciting to be able to paint the picture I wanted to paint. Um, the freedom allowed for my brain to be less broken by the process and that freedom really really fed my 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 vehicle and 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 what i mean is that it's a three-year process when you're doing all the editing and the sound and, and the vfx and stuff like that it can really break you and to some degree it did um but it it was very easy so it wasn't it wasn't hard to make this movie even though it was very hard to make this movie if that makes sense um physically and just, you know, that was the hardest part is, is, is waking up and going for, you know, as many hours as we did for 60 days, first of all, and shooting it. And then on the post end of it, just waking up every day. And, and I'm, I'm the guy who is motivating myself to sit down and edit all the footage. And I don't have an assistant editor and all the rest of that stuff. And then to then go back and insert in every single screen, all the graphics and stuff that I have to go. <laughs> like, it's just, you, you need a lot of like, momentum and the momentum was the freedom to put something out that I was proud of. So I, I know you can't talk about the budget too much, but uh, I can't help but notice your Canadian accent. Was this a Canadian? <laughs> what did I say? What did I say? That was <laughs> you Canadian? said project. Um, oh, yes, yes. But uh, project. was this... <laughs> <laughs> was this under the traditional Canadian financing system for film or did you work in other uh, creative ways to put the money together? So it was a low budget film. Um, and because I'm Canadian, we're, we, have, we have a lovely system called Telefilm that is, is in place to, to help us uh, complete financing and help, you know, sometimes fully finance projects. Uh, in this case, they came on for, I believe it was about a quarter of the, the budget. Um, and, uh, Another quarter of the budget was tax credits for shooting where we shot. And then, so then we just needed to come up with the other half of the budget. So two, you know, one half was, was tax credits and telefilm. The other half was uh, actual um, cash financing through people, wonderful people. Um, I don't know if they want to be named. Equity investors though. Like yeah, ec equity yeah. investors, but people I had worked with in the past in the commercial sector and, and outside of that, who just knew what I was able to do on such a little amount of money. So. I, I can't wait to hear about the story of you developing this movie to be your first feature, 
then for some reason making another feature. And I wanna, I wanna hear about why that happened and like why people were encouraging you to make another feature before come true. You know, quite honestly, probably because they didn't believe in the project <laughs> because it, it, it isn't an odd, like if you re- read the original script, it isn't, an, you know, it's not, it's not what you get. I made some shorts that got me into Hollywood and the people in Hollywood have a very different idea and obviously not everybody, I'm not going to blanket statement, but there is a large percentage of people there who have a very definite idea about what a sellable project is. And, you know, for me, I felt that this was a sellable project because I know that there are niche markets that are underserved. Um, you know, it's the, you know, the people who like, you know, the movies I love, th- those people don't get them enough. So they would prefer because of, they were trying to build me into s- something, I, you know, the next big thing. And, and, and so I was pushed towards more commercial uh, screenplays. And I, you know, they basically said, you know, make this come true thing once you're established. And so I went off and made it something else. And I tried my best in the screenplay uh, of that movie to make something original and then in the edit process uh it was reduced back to what it what it what they originally wanted to do and know they wanted to do which was some movie it's available it's called our house it has really really lovely performances from some of the key cast who i adored working with um um but it was supposed to be much darker and original and it was and i liked my cut of the film (laughs) <laughs> and this was representation urging you to make this more commercial film. That, yeah. I guess that's part A. And then part B is, um, did were you unable to negotiate Final Cut because it was your first feature? Yes. Yeah. Well, no. When it's somebody else's money on that scale, uh, and it was still a low budget, lower budget film, but you know, within the realm of you know, listen, somebody else's three three million dollars, right? Yeah, I wasn't going to get Final Cut. And the financing was all from all over the world and everybody around the world. And I didn't know this was told that the movie was going to be something else than it was, you know? And and so even in the financing that I did not know about, um, it was, you know, this is going to be like scary, like insidious. And that's fine. If that's the handshake you make when you say, I'm going to make this movie, I have no problems making a scary movie like that. But if you say you're going to make something that is more akin to don't look now, (laughs) (laughs) you know uh and then it gets cut into something more like uh insidious that's when the the arguments start to happen and listen no one is 100% wrong because everyone there's a lot of pieces to this puzzle um but but I just wasn't willing to do it I wasn't willing to cut that kind of a film into another kind of film and and have it be you know something that you know the actors would not be proud of etc so did you get pitched this like insidious version of this movie originally. And then you're like, nah, I see it. There's no. something else. Or was that just never no, part it of was, it? I, I had taken a screenplay that was sitting at universal unproduced and I really liked it. And it was written by Nathan Parker who wrote moon. And it was, it was really, really, it was a lovely draft of something that could be turned into at that time. This is pre stranger things. Uh, when I was working on this and I thought it's time to bring back that Amblin feel and we can sort of encode that with modern empathy, if that makes sense, is that you take some, something that people love and now we start to encode it with a different kind of empathetic viewpoint, which we all have now, uh, you know, 20, 25 years later. Um, and that was the impetus. And so I rewrote it with a friend of mine 
and because no one's going to pay anyone to do rewrites. Uh, and so we, we made that movie into something that we were happy with and that's what we shot. Um, but it was in the edit because the performances were so strong from our, our leads. Like we had Thomas Mann from me, Earl and the dying girl in it. And, 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 and the family dynamic was so strong that I think that everybody involved thought this could be not just good, but huge. If we, if we put some, jump scares and things like that in it, which I was just not, I didn't want to do. I love that. Um, we, I am not going to go into my appreciation for that because I'm getting to my next question. Cause we're on a time crunch um, yeah, <laughs> for come, for come true. Yeah, talk about come true. <laughs> yeah, come true. Um, we talked to the Nelms brothers recently and they said they, uh, they always, they never gave away days. The days were the most important thing in terms of building a production schedule and building your budget. Um, they would give away equipment rather than days. So yes. can you talk about what you used your 60 days for? Was it rehearsals? Was it doing more takes? Like, how did you use that time? It was about doing takes. It was about doing takes. And I, I love rehearsing in the space with the actors, finding out what they, uh, how they feel about the lines and, and the interactions and where they would do them naturally and how they would think their character would do them in that space. Um, and building sort of sets that are pretty much 360s. And then once we see it going in and, and photographing the best possible angle for that sort of scenario. So I think, which goes back to how things used to be, you know, that's in, at least what, from what I could see, you know, in one, in all my years of, deep diving laser discs, you know, that, that was the process for so many filmmakers that I admired. And so I wanted to do that, not just because I admired it, but because it makes sense. And so we did the same thing. We would give up almost anything to have that time with the actors. So it, it meant, you know, my co-producer, Nick and I spray painting all the props and building all the props, et cetera. And, and just doing and every, every costume was handpicked at value village or, or whatever store we got it at by myself <laughs> because it was necessary because otherwise we would lose those days. So you, you mentioned that your crew is five people. Talk about what were those five roles that you whittled down to for your crew? So you need great sound. <laughs> you need a focus puller. Um, you need an AD. Uh, you need makeup and hair. And who was it? And then we had our production manager who basically made sure that everyone got fed and, and was everywhere on time. Wait, you didn't have a production designer on this no, film? No, that was me. That was me. Oh my gosh. And, and were you the cinematographer as well as the director? Yes. Oh shit. Wow. Oh, so this shit. is how you get it done. I see. Well, it's, <laughs> I, I don't recommend it for everybody. You know, like I said, it, 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 it definitely took a physical toll you know, a physical and, and probably a mental toll to do and keep track of all of that stuff. Um, but yeah, there was no production designer. <laughs> I wish. Wow. Uh, why this story? Like, why do, why to go to these extents uh, for this story? Why, why was it so important to you? Well, it's weird. You know, when you watch the film, you can take it as two, two things. It's just a genre movie or, or it's an art movie. But I, for me, this story is weirdly personal because at the end of the day, even though it takes place in a genre space, it's not really about that. Um, and when, what I thought I was writing was something about just the nature of, of where we're living right now and, and sort of 
And I know that sounds super weird, but that's what the film is really about is, is I, was I was driven to write this by some unknown force and put this out by some unknown force. And I just, I, I listened to it and allowed it. And, and it's only again in hindsight that I realized that a lot of filmmakers that I admire do the same thing is, is they just listen to that inner voice. And it's almost like the idea just speaks through you. And, and I really wanted to be a very honest conduit to whatever that was, whether it made sense or not. And then in doing so, you know, I think a lot of people connect to it because it's speaking some sort of weird dream language. <laughs> That's why I, I just wanted to be an honest conduit to whatever it was because it really came out easily when I wrote the screenplay. It was, it was kind of wild. So your yeah, movie's about to come out um, through IFC Midnight. Um, talk about the road to get to where you are now with your distribution. Like, like what would you attribute to like this deal happening? Is it because of, you know, a certain film festival that you premiered at or that you played at? Is it because of the connections you had? Like, how did this, how did you get this kind of perception well, for the film? I honestly don't know because I, I sort of stay out of the sort of festival part of it. Anthony, you're already doing so much. Just add another thing on. I don't get it. <laughs> uh, well, okay. Well, if I'm honest, I, I feel like we just stuck to our guns <laughs> and made something that we really felt was quality and, and that we could stand behind. And probably because, you know, Fantasia, which is a lovely festival, we, we, we got such great press out of that. And then we went to, you know, Nightstream and got great, great press out of that and Sitches and got great press out of that. So I think just people enjoying it at the festivals uh, definitely made IFC take notice it's interesting to know that ifc actually distributed my previous one as well and they didn't know that there was any issue and so they were happy to bring me on <laughs> to continue the tradition of, of, of having my films which is so awesome of them um uh but uh, and they had no idea that anything had gone on in the behind the scenes in that film but yeah i think you know if if you just work put a lot of work into something that you believe in the hope is that people will respond to it because you're making something honest. So just to follow up really quick. So did you have any connections at any of these film festivals or did you just submit blindly or were you? I personally, I personally, no, I didn't actually, my representation booted me. When I quit. Wow. All of them, they had to, you know, they can't represent someone who's difficult. And I understand that, you know, it was no hard feelings. Uh, but then now I have representation again because I made come true. Uh, so ha happy times. Uh, yeah, I, I personally did not have any connections, but because my producers are Stephen Hoban and Mark Smith of uh, Copper you know, they have a ripping slice and ginger snaps and Vincenzo Natale is the EPs. And you know, obviously that, that does not, not help. And it's great to have them, even when you're going through the process of editing and stuff, to have all those voices helping you craft the strongest version of your film. Uh, so I'm sure, you know, those connections helped. Um, and then Todd Brown, I don't know if you know Todd Brown from XYZ. He uh, is a fellow uh, who has always been a cheerleader of mine because he's a fellow Torontonian and had, had seen my work coming up through just my shorts and stuff. And he's really been a huge supporter. And I'm, I, it doesn't, you know, like I said, it's just making the things you love. And, and then I'm, I'm not excellent at cultivating relationships. <laughs> And, and, and that it, it just comes from me being buried in my work a lot. Uh, 
And so I don't have a lot of connections and I don't know a lot of people, but, but I, I do think that, again, it just comes back to the work. If you're honest and you just keep making the things that you love. I don't think filmmaking is about connections because at the end of the day, you know, say you make a movie, it's not good. And you have all these great friends, right? They're not going to push it anywhere. <laughs> you know, like, they're just not going to, even if they love you. Um, so I think filmmaking is especially now because there's not a lot of money to go around in sales for low budget genre and stuff like that. So it really, it really does have to be something that they're, they think they can make money with, you know, and that there's an audience for. So even with all the connections in the world, I don't know that I could get into festivals. So I, maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. I, like I said, I sort of stay out of that. I make the movie and then hope to God someone wants to put it somewhere. <laughs> well, let's talk a little bit about sustainability. So I'm piecing together a little bit about your career and I may be wrong, but I mean, is part of the reason why you, you pivoted to new representation is that you are a commercial director in addition to the features? No, I started off as a commercial director because I gave up on making features when I was younger um, because it seemed so out of reach. I, I pivoted away from commercials after a couple of years because I just didn't, I didn't enjoy the feeling of, of, of doing the work I love. Uh, and, and, uh, I don't know, it sounds weird to, you know, privileged, you know, that's, it's a, I didn't like doing that work, but it, it's, 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 it's that I'm somebody who, who can't lie. <laughs> Does that make sense? And so if there's, if someone is asking me for the, you know, a new way to sell cheese whiz, my answer is make something better than cheese whiz. Oh, cheese whiz is so delicious. I usually <laughs> different product. <laughs> You know what I mean? It's like if you're trying to get more people to buy something that is probably not great to begin with, don't, don't ask me to come up with some new inventive way to do it because just come up with something better. It's, it's, just not, it's just not in me. And while people like to have me do it because I could do it on a budget and do it and have it look a certain way, um, but it just wasn't for me. And, and so, no, the, the new representation is just... I think representation is, is key in trying to get as many scripts in front of your eyeballs as possible. And so when you make a film and, and you do get representation, um, it's, it's nice to be able to read a lot of scripts in the hopes that you'll come across a good one because that's, there's so few good ones that, that, that you need to read a lot. And so that's what I, and, and it helps with getting talent too. You know, representation is great for that. You know, they can really reach out. Me on my own, I can't just walk up to somebody and say, hey, you want to be in my movie? So it's, it's great. For... I genuinely don't think you can. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes. Well, you know, there is this new category we're seeing because of the new film market of, uh, and my producer, Nick, and I joke about it. Oh, we can get him. It's like Guy Pierce. We can get him. <laughs> because... <laughs> Gettable. Yes, of course. He's in everything, though. You, you walk up to Guy Pierce. I feel really badly because I love Guy Pierce to death. And I don't know what's going on personally that he's doing so many movies now. It's like Bruce Willis and Nick Cage and Guy Pierce. Like these guys are just in everything. And just to yeah. press a little bit on Liz's question, like, are you um, a full-time filmmaker? Is that all you do to provide for yourself, or do you do other things in order to, you know, pay the bills, well, etc.? Weirdly enough, I, I I survived longer in the past two years composing. Uh, than, than actually making movies. Uh, I, I did a soundtrack for another filmmaker, um, uh, Chris McBride out of Toronto. Uh, he made a really lovely film starring Dylan O'Brien and Michael Monroe called The Education of Frederick F uh, Fitzell. And I did the score for that. And I helped out a little bit on the score for uh, Liam O'Donnell's uh, uh, Skylines. Um, 
so I sort of have been doing a little bit and licensing my music to projects and things like that. So music has actually been, it started off as a hobby 20, more than 20 years ago. And, uh, and so that's been sort of the thing that's kept me alive. So I'm trying to be a filmmaker full time, um, but it's definitely hard. It's definitely hard to do that. Uh, do I do commercials every once in a while? Yes, but I don't put my name on. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Again, it's, it's a privileged place to be, um, but I, it comes from me being able to deliver things on a budget. It's not because I live some amazing life. <laughs> um, we have to jump to final five, right, Ulrich? We have to do we it. Do. Yes, sorry, we do. Sorry, guys. Well, it's shit, okay. let's do it. Uh, all right, what's the first film you ever made and how do you feel about it now? Oh, oh, you mean like the very first? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, the first film I ever made... Oh, I can't, I don't know if I'm remembering it correctly. I would say the first finished, finished film is something called Electricity. It's just a short. And I feel pretty great about it because it's a time capsule where my father jumped in to play some of the, you know, characters in it. And uh, it was, it started me thinking I could do it. Um, and so I really, I, I like it. I like that. Yeah. I'm, I, I have fond memories of, of, of you know, my I was making these things on two VHSs, you know, like so it's, it's, it's old school. It's fun. So I, I have, listen, I'm still doing the same thing. <laughs> so it hasn't really changed. So it's just different technology. What's the best filmmaking advice you've ever received? I, there's so many great pieces of filmmaking advice. Uh, just give me a second. I mean, it's kind of what I said earlier. I don't know who said it to me, but it, it, I think just through years of watching commentaries, you realize that, that it's all about, actors it, it really is you can make a movie about like i said daniel day lewis having a pop on, on the side of the road and he'll make it in something worth watching so it really is me really really listen to your actors and and they're really really for me they're key maybe not everybody but for me they're key uh do you have a goal as a as a storyteller <laughs> to have a career <laughs> <laughs> to, to be able to to survive and do it in, in the modern landscape, uh, not to just make honest films that people, uh, that some people enjoy and connect with. Um, I, that's really it. That my goal is to, I, I really love doing this. It's super fun to be on set and work with people. Um, and to, and to see the things that are in your mind actually come out. So yeah, my goal is to just keep doing this and, and at any cost, I probably will. And if you could go back in time, what's one piece of advice you would give yourself? You have Asperger's syndrome. You're not a bad person. <laughs> that's, that's my advice to my younger self. Cause I did not know I was, and so I was a very weird kid. So, yeah, that's why I'm not great at cultivating relationships is that, that I'm, I'm an out of sight, out of mind person who lives in my world of creating things. And so it, it just so happens that I'm lucky that my obsession is, design filmmaking and music and now i get to make money from that weird obsession some people with asperger's aren't so lucky and their obsession is train sets <laughs> and so they're in big trouble you know i'm just lucky that my dad introduced me to movies when i was very very young and and i was on set with him and so yeah it became my obsession it's like a whole separate side conversation and i just want to say for what it's worth like you did list like a bunch of producers, representation, your relationship with cast. And then you then you said like right after that, you're bad at cultivating relationships. <laughs> so I just think that there's well, uh, disparate yeah. well, disconnect. Uh, well, in, in, you know what I mean? Like in, 
Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I just, yeah, I, I probably still just think I'm bad at it because I, it, that's part of having the Asperger's. And our final question is making yeah. movies hard. Yes, it is, but it's absolutely worth it because on the other side, there's no other feeling like it when you've finished making, you guys know it's, it, yes, it's hard, but it's super fun. It's, it's, I, 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 I was a cadet when I was younger because my dad was in the military and his dad and his dad and his dad and making movies for me gives you that same feeling of camaraderie of having, you know, obviously you didn't go to war, but you kind of did. <laughs> you didn't have to, you didn't, you're not in that much, but it, I, I sort of, that feeling of camaraderie and, and sort of joy of working together to create something it's, there's nothing like it, you know, whatever, sort of task you're doing, whether it's filmmaking or whatever. And I think that's why people are drawn to it is that it really is when you come out the other side and people have worked together and done something together, it really is a nice feeling. Uh, sell your wares. Where can people find you, support you? How can they see the film? Uh, on March 12th, they can see the film. Uh, I don't even know what platforms, but probably all of them where you can get them on, on demand. Um, March 12th from IFC in the States and then in Canada, it'll be out on the same date. And then in UK, Australia, New Zealand, uh, Ireland uh, on the 15th on demand. But I mean, you can see it in some theaters. I, I feel weird recommending that. <laughs> You're safe. Uh, be safe. Yeah, be safe. Uh, yeah, I, I would love for people to be able to see this in the theater one day. Maybe, well, you know, but, or it is going to be out in theaters on the 12th. Yeah. <laughs> Here, from Sarah. Here we go. This is, this is, what am I saying here? Okay. Opens in, <laughs> opens in select theaters, digital platforms, and VOD on March 12th. And feel free to say something like more, uh, oh, <laughs> 8 billion. Nice. Okay. Sorry. I just saw the chat now. <laughs> Budget. Yeah. But thank yes. you, Sarah. <laughs> yes. Thank you, Sarah. I'm terrible at this part of it. The festival part, this part of selling it, I'm not good at selling it. I can't sell my words. Just, if you like the film, tell people about it. It'd be great to have as many eyes on it as possible. Not because we want to get rich, but because we want to connect with people. Sweet. Well, thanks so, so much. This has been we fantastic. Did it. Yeah. yeah. Thank, Thank you, you for having me. Do you love making movies as hard and you want to listen to more episodes? Jump over to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash MMIH and you can listen to the entire back catalog of episodes for just $1.99 a month. That's an additional 300 episodes that aren't on iTunes that you can listen to whenever you please. But without any more blibber blabber. Back to the show. Okay, Ulrich, if Anthony was on the show today, what you what would you ask him? I would want to know like how what how he feels about his movie now. Like did he, yeah. does he feel like that it was the big success that it, that he was hoping it was going to be? Like cuz you know, when we talked to him, it is just in festivals, I believe, or he was like about to come out soon. But yeah, I would love to hear like how the release went, what he's working on now and yeah, like basically, because it's a question I ask myself almost every day, like, how do I feel about my movie? And I have a different answer every day. But, you know, I'd want to know, like, yeah, how does he feel about his movie now that it's done and out in the world? What about you, Liz? Yeah, and like how the strike is impacting him. I think oh, that's yeah. the question I just want to constantly ask everyone is what are they doing? How are they faring? Is is there uh, silence in their life or are there things percolating in the background that we don't know about. So I'd be curious what his experience is. Awesome. Yeah. Those are both good questions. One thing I wanted to throw in here that's completely unrelated. A friend of our show, Emily Apt, is doing a crowdfunding campaign for her feature, uh, Thirsty, right now. I can't believe I didn't remember the name right away. 
<laughs> so go, definitely go check that out. Look it up on, on Kickstarter. Just search Thirsty Emily or Thirsty Emily app and you'll find it. And uh, they're, I think they've got 12 days left of their campaign or something like that. And at this point, probably like six or seven. So yeah, go on there, give what you can, support the movie and yeah, help some indie filmmakers get a, get another movie out of the world. It'd be very cool. Let's support Emily. Let's also go forward with our You're the Expert segment. It says Ulrich asked Liz, but I think I'm asking you, Ulrich. Is that right? Because you I asked me. I think you are asking me. Okay. I'm going to ask you the You're the Expert. So You're the Expert is another handmade segment from our producer, Eric Toms. And the idea is that Eric thinks we're experts. Eric may be wrong, but he thinks we're experts. And so he posits a question for us to try to answer in an expertise factor on the show and this week is everyone says sound is the most important thing on a film how much sound coverage slash equipment do you really need boom loves dedicated sound person what do you think Arik? yeah i think that you should have like the, the bare minimum for sound is boom and a laugh and you yes you should definitely have a dedicated sound person if you can't afford a real sound person, you got to give someone on your team the responsibility of recording sound <laughs> and make it their job, which I have done on, on, on projects before. Like even if you just like have a Zoom recorder and you're like, hey, you are the one in charge of making sure that you hit record on the Zoom, <laughs> that it's placed in a position that's going to pick up the actors. We don't have, have lavalier mics. We don't have a boom, but you just said the Zoom, like just give one person the job of managing that Zoom. Because if you don't, if you like hand that responsibility around to other people or you try to take it on yourself, this is going to be a disaster. And if you just use a Zoom without labs or a boom, it's probably going to be a semi-disaster anyways, but <laughs> at least one person will be in charge of making it the best experience that it possibly can be. But yeah, I would definitely say minimum, if you can't get labs, very minimum, have someone booming. And it would be good if they knew what they were doing because booming looks easy, but it's not. It's actually very hard to boom properly. So yeah, I don't know. I, w <laughs> I think the more I'm saying this, like every movie that I've made since Strange Thing, I've had a dedicated sound person, unless the movie didn't have sound, which which was the case in one of my shorts where you just didn't have it. It was like a, a completely experimental thing where we didn't have like... We did, and, then, and that's funny. In that situation, we didn't hire a sound person, but I did give somebody a Zoom recorder <laughs> and, a, and a boom and a mic. And I was like, look, there's just this one scene that needs that we need to capture the audio. Just boom this one scene. And they did, and it worked out okay. So yeah, that's my that's my advice. Is just if you if you have dialogue in a movie, get a sound person. And at the bare minimum, they should have a boom, and then you know, and, and ideally, boom and laughs. But Liz, what do you think? Yeah, I'm a little more conservative than you are on this answer in that I, I wouldn't even accept someone just booming a film. Like to me, that's not <laughs> acceptable. <laughs> I, I think that you have to have the backup. You have to have both boom and loves. And I don't know why I say love instead of labs. I know it's lavalier, but it just sounds better to say love for me. And I think the question is, how are you crewing this person up? Usually I do MFN for crew, which means most favorite nations, which means everyone gets what the highest paid person gets. But sometimes I get away with everyone get the exact same rate, except for sound. Sound is often allowed and afforded to be the exception to that uh, equality <laughs> on set because it's very, very hard to find a great sound person 
who will work for quote unquote indie rates. And I would say they're, uh, everyone is worth every penny of their rate, but I am more than willing to dish out every dollar I can for good sound. And then the other question is, do you have two people or one person? Because on my first feature, I had a real professional IATSE, he wasn't supposed to be working on our film because it was non-union, <laughs> but <laughs> IATSE mixer. And then he helped train boom operators ah. that came as volunteers. So he got the day rate and then when we either had a adjusted much smaller day rate for the, the quote unquote volunteers or they were volunteering their time and he would train them exactly how to hold the boom, how to get the best sound. And then on my second feature, I had a guy who did boom and mix himself and both were great, but I, th- I feel like I, it was the second option was a little bit easier. It was, and I trusted him and we didn't have to worry about onboarding anyone, right? So just think about, do you, yes, you could have members of your crew, no. director sometimes Don't is do it. boom operator. Do it. I've it's seen directors be boom operators. Don't make your director do it. Oh my God. I agree. Don't do it. But, but have every backup, have every backup for sound that you can, because I just think that, you know, distribution actually does hinge on sound as well and marketing and the quality of film is evaluated on sound. Especially with a feature. Like when we're, when you do your, your turnover uh, to your distributor, they'll do a QC process. And if you can't hear certain words that they won't, they won't accept it. You know, if like, it's not audible, you know, Mm -hmm. and there's some stuff you can get by with like on creative decision. Like, Oh, I didn't want that to be clear, but like, yeah, they will, they'll flag you if your sound's not good enough. So, yeah, I mean, obviously we will, we all should have, you know, labs and booms, but I'm just thinking if you, if you're, if you're in a situation where you can't afford the ideal, then I would, the boom with a with a good operator would be like my my bottom line, you know. But on my movies, I, so all my shorts, I had a sound person who did booming and mixing, and then I worked on a bunch of movies after that. And I was like, oh yeah, much better to have uh, at least minimum, you know, a two person sound team, like a, a you know a boom op and a and a mixer. And then if you can have a third person to like you know be an additional boom op or like you know just a sound assist. That would be amazing, you know, but like, yeah. So on my feature, I made sure that we had a two person sound team just because it felt like, I don't know, just felt like the right thing to do. And I'm very glad that we did that. And then, you know, in the indie world, you know, it's like if you have a two person sound team and you're like, you know, you're, you're doing most favorite nations or whatever, or like super low budget, like you're going to lose your sound person every once in a while because they're going to have to take a commercial job for a day or two days or three days. But like, if you have a dedicated yeah. boom, who's been on the movie that whole time, they're most likely also a mixer. And so you have a backup built in and then you can get another boom operator to replace that person, which is like what we did most of the time. And then actually for the second half of the movie or the, the third week, our uh, boom op became our mixer. And then we had another boom op and, and it was great. It was a really great experience. So yeah, I would definitely, if possible for a feature, definitely have a two person team. But like, I don't know, especially when you're starting out, you gotta, you gotta get crafty sometimes and really go down to the bare minimum. So yeah. Any other notes on sound, Liz? No, I just, I was just thinking lovingly about my sound person for Speed of Life and how I wish I could work with him forever, but I can't afford him. So just shout out to Richard Carlos, who will never listen to this podcast and everyone hire him because he's so wonderful. Very cool. Okay, well, let us know what you think. Do you disagree? What What is your bare minimum on a sound person? 
is it just labs and and no recorder labs and a, and a zoom tucked in, in the corner of the room and that's it or do you have uh, other bare minimum needs for sound let us know you can send that you can send that response and other kinds of questions comments or suggestions to podcast at making movies is hard.com or if you really like the show you can leave us a review on itunes we've had a lot of reviews on itunes this year but one more would be great as always you can also check us out on facebook instagram and twitter at mmih podcast youtube at making movies is hard podcast and thanks to our editor jeff Rabbit for doing the editing for our producer eric toms for being awesome and then of course for to robert jones for handling all our social media and thank you all for listening and we'll talk to y'all next week Our house is a mess. Come on in. I'm Amber Wallen, internet comedian, plant queen, and host of your new favorite podcast, Fly on the Wild. Okay, that's pretty presumptuous to assume that this is going to be their favorite podcast, by the way. Like, come on, Amber. Anyway, that wasp that you just heard interrupt me is my husband. And co-host, Benjamin Wallen, also a comedian, and I host people at our home. I have a great wine collection in my cellar. Well, you it's mean not a cellar. the mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. Yeah. New episodes of Fly on the Wallen drop every Wednesday. Listen in as we discuss relationships, books, and keeping our sweet baby kid alive while we make laughs on the internet. Subscribe to Fly on the Wallen wherever you get your podcasts.